Let's listen. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign. On the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray for the word and for the hearers. Father, we thank you for the word that you brought to us and that you brought to our brother John, who suffered uh, for uh, his testimony of the living uh, Christ, resurrected from the dead. Though the rulers of this age sought to uh, snuff him out. You have made him the ruler of all and made him the chief cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected. And so we pray this morning that we would find these words, though strange and, and pretty amazing, that they would be full of comfort and that we would receive uh, our identity that's, that's declared here as a real gift, as a real tool uh, to help us navigate in this world of many rulers, many options, many choices, for how we might uh, be identified. Uh, so focus us on Christ and who we are in Him and then what is our mission uh, in the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so just as introduction, if, if you are not uh, hadn't spent a lot of time in uh, Revelation, really good book to kind of think about. I can call it kind of a palate cleanser after the uh, campaign season, is called A Peculiar People. And this isn't about why Christians are weird. Um, I don't quite know why. But, uh, but this is the church as a culture in a post-Christian society. And a lot of the chagrin you hear about from Christians is that, oh, our country, we've lost our country. It's no longer a Christian country. And kind of the, the whole thrust of the book is get over it. Most Christians live in a non-Christian country. So... Join the, join the crowd, you know, and basically get your identity not from 
your party or your, your flag, but get it from Christ. And then practice that, live that out in the context of, of weekly worship and the life, life of the church. Um, so here he says, despite the fact that, that John's readers are ragtag, disenfranchised, often persecuted bands of believers, John's communities are bold enough to set their worship head to head with the worship of the mighty Roman Empire. Thus, two of the seven churches John addresses in the early chapters are in the cities of Smyrna and Pergamum, strongholds of the cult of worship of the Roman Emperor. It is just such churches that John seeks to remind in and through the mode of the liturgy that things are not as they seem. For all its power and apparent ability to name what is ultimately worthy, Rome's worship is really nothing more than a parody of the praise and service of Israel's God. The real Lord and lion turns out to be the lamb who was led to slaughter. Those slain by the beast that is Rome, like the lamb they follow, are actually conquerors. Those who now seem powerless will receive obeisance from those they fear, and those who suffer poverty are actually rich. In short, the business of worship as it is depicted in Revelation is to stand things on their heads in the perceptions of its audience, to rob the established order of the most fundamental power of all, its sheer facticity. What he's saying here is that <clears throat> in a world where, quote-unquote, the facts are just the facts, the rulers are the rulers, the persecuted and the, and the downtrodden, those who are on uh, the wrong side of things, that's just the way it is. It'll never, never shift. And actually, worship rearranges the world as it is. God as king and God's people as loved and treasured and claimed and washed and protected. And that every Lord's Day we reenact reality. Because everywhere else we're kind of playing around with reality. How can we shift it towards our favor? Or how can the powerful or the rich shift reality in their favor? And so John... Actually, if you read the beginning of Revelation, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. In the context of worship, he was, we imagine, a church of one. He was exiled on an island, um, imprisoned for his faith. And so he's removed from the Christian community. He's removed from the joy of fellowship. It's just him and Jesus on a rocky island all alone. And you can imagine, as many of the prophets in the Old Testament, a real depression setting in. <coughs> Here I've been faithful to Jesus. I've loved him. John was called the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's not going so great. He's not feeling the love on the Isle of Patmos. And yet God graciously blesses him with a vision of the way things really are. Wouldn't we love to just peel back heaven and see what's going on in the control room of the universe? Well, that's what the book of Revelation is, is God peeling back the curtains so that John, the suffering servant of Jesus, can see that Jesus is king and that God's people, although they're dying every day, they are truly alive in Christ. And so this this is the gift to us in this passage, is having the curtain peeled back. And what's the very first thing that we see, and it starts really in chapter 4, is, and I saw a throne. And the good news is the throne isn't in Washington, D.C. The throne is in heaven. It's, it's the place where everything began, where God said, let there be light. He speaks and it's done. 
and we fantasize about that. That's the fantasy of magic or maybe Harry Potter. To say it, and it happens, that is the kind of God that we have. He, his word creates and his word uh, rules. And so we see this throne. But here, it, this picture um, actually strikes a lot of sadness in John's heart for some reason. Because we see on this throne is one who sits there and he has a scroll sealed with seven uh, seals. And we won't spend a lot of time to geek out on, on all the significance of that. <clears throat> but what's wrapped up in this is kind of two senses of, a, of this scroll is it's a will and testament of what's to come to those who inherit um, the Father's kingdom. And then it's also what will happen in judgment. And so with bated breath, everyone is waiting. What's in it? What's in it? You hear their will's going to be read. Everybody's going to think, how much is coming to me? How many zeros are there going to be in that number when I inherit um, my inheritance? And so John has a sense of what's in it, but then he cries in verse 4. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. I think we all have this sense of, man, I'm a little bit scared to see what's in the future. But we really don't like living in the present without that sense. And so we can't live with it. We can't live without it. We just are filled with dread. And we say, who could tell us what's going to happen? And even better than that, who will enable us to withstand uh, what comes up in the future? I can't handle the suspense, but probably I can't handle the news either. And so John is trembling. John is weeping. No one is able to open the scroll. But then look, here's the good news coming. One of the elders that's standing around the throne says, Weep no more. This really echoes the call that the angels many times gave and even Jesus himself says, Fear not. Weep no more. Dry your tears. The good news has come. And what's the good news? The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Man, for oppressed people, this, this message that the lion has conquered is just brilliant. It, it's just exciting. Finally, um, I was about an 80-pound weakling through most of my life up till about age 32. Um, <laughs> So there's a great fantasy of, of revenge and of triumph of like no longer uh, the underdog, right? And so for oppressed people to hear this message, this is sweet news. Oh, the li- our team is going to win. Our mascot is going to just trample the opposition. This is great news. The lion has conquered and he is of the root of David. Finally, we're going to have a king around here that does things right and that will protect the weak and the poor and the righteous who suffer. <clears throat> but then look at verse 6. This lion, the image switches to show us how did this triumph take place. Did it take place that the lion stands uh, over the dead bodies of his enemies, roaring, and the earth shakes and everything melts? Where did this triumph take place? Well, verse 6, we see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
And here we see how the upside-down kingdom of God works, is that God's mightiest triumph was actually in a defeat, in a self-sacrifice of a lamb who was slain. And the people that read this, some of them would have, would eventually give their own blood for the sake of this lamb. And others were fantasizing about the blood of their enemies being spilled in the streets. We have just this deep sense of revenge. Half of it comes from a godly sense of justice, and maybe the other half just comes from just a wicked desire to make others pay. And God trumps that through the gospel, saying that, the great victim and the great victor is the same person, and it's Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for us, who forgives his enemies and brings him in to the folds of the family of God. So if you're taking notes, kind of the good news of who is worthy, <coughs> first one is Christ is worthy through his bloody victory. And that's in verses 6 through 8. And so then this lamb was able to go and take the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the only right response when we see Christ revealed for who he is, is worship. What happens? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll spend a lot of time on this, but the four living creatures, <coughs> most scholars believe, symbolizes creation, the different aspects of creation. And in other prophecies, they're shown as four different animals, an eagle, an ox, um, a lamb, and a man. I might have one of those wrong, but look it up. <coughs> That's your Bible homework. This is saying that all of creation bows before its rightful king, who is Jesus. The 24 elders, most scholars believe this represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles showing that the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament are unified in worshiping Christ. And the church bows to Christ because he is her head. And here we have the harp, which everybody envisions strumming a harp. On clouds, this is where they get it from. There actually is a harp verse, but we need to tease out more of what that means. But here it is. But then there's a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. In the temple, there was always incense burning before God as a symbol that prayer is always rising up to him and that God is the God who hears prayers. And prayers in Revelation are specifically the prayers of the saints who are being martyred for their faith. How long, O Lord, when will you bring justice on the earth? We have suffered for your name. Will you answer and will you avenge our blood? And so these prayers are coming up to God in the context of worship, and they are coming to the Lamb who was, has given himself for them. And so what's the song of heaven? Worthy. Worthy are you. Worship is Christocentric. It's Christ-centered because history is Christ-centered. The kingdom is Christ-centered. 
And then it says finally uh, in 1 Corinthians that he will hand over the kingdom to the Father so that together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that all the universe will be Trinity-centered. That, that's where we're headed. That's really the message of Revelation. Is That's where history is going. <clears throat> Not which political party will finally have to say which civilization on earth will have <coughs> preeminence. <coughs> Where it's all headed is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rule all things, and everything enjoys Him. So verses 6 through 8 announce Christ being worthy through His bloody victory. Now it actually comes down to us. Verses 9 and 10. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the second point, if you're taking notes, is Christ is worthy to give us a high calling. And it's this interesting picture of kingdom and priests, a nation of kings and priests or priest kings, if you want to hyphenate it. Um, <clears throat> what a weird picture. Which one is it? Are we kings or are we servants? And Jesus is the perfect example of that, where you have to say, yes. Our servant king, who is lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lamb who was slain, is the perfect servant king. What did a priest do? Well, a priest stood before God, and also in the presence of the people so that their sins could be forgiven, so that they could hear the words of God, so that they could approach God. And here we have a wonderful role as a Christian of to be someone who stands between both God and people. We're like the people. Why? Because we are fellow sinners with them. But we are like God through adoption, and so we stand in this unusual place between God and men. But one of the main roles... Uh, that we see um, the priest uh, occupying is one of intercession. Pleading the case of the people before God. Abraham did this when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was to be destroyed. Do you remember what Abraham did? God, if there's just like 30 people can you just lay off? He's like, okay, if there's 30. And then Abraham looks around. He's like, can we make that 20? I'm having trouble coming up with 30. How about 20? And then he gets down to like 10, pleading. Would you spare the city for 10? Would, you know, and it gets down, and obviously there's not even a dozen righteous. And he's pleading, God, in your mercy, in your mercy, would you save this place? And so this puts us in a weird spot, depending on, on where we're at in America. Do we pray judgment or do we pray mercy? If we have fantasies of just napalm falling on certain cities or certain people, uh, that's not quite the role. That's maybe the role of a prophet. But here we have uh, the role of a priest to say, Lord, have mercy, forgive their sins. And Christ himself, as he was approaching <clears throat> 
his own sacrifice. He, he wept over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother gathers her chicks. And he wept because they wouldn't come. And they would, would perish. They would be destroyed. And so to be uh, claimed by Christ and washed with his blood means that we are claimed for his mission of intercession uh, for tribes and languages, peoples and nations who are against God and without God. So that's a servant role. But then we're really maybe attracted by the king role. Oh, yeah, I can't wait till I get to be in charge. I was just thinking about that on the way over. There were two disciples whose mom actually went to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, when you get in your kingdom, can my boys sit on your right hand and your left hand? And one of those boys was the guy that's writing this book, Revelation. (laughs) But where is John right now? Is he sitting with Jesus uh, up in the cabinet offices of kingdom of God? No, he's on an island all by himself suffering for this resurrected Christ. Because remember what did Jesus say? Well, sure, but you got to first drink the cup that I drink. What was that cup? The cup of suffering of the cross. And that's what John was experiencing was the suffering that is attached to being attached to Jesus. So sure, you can rule with me, but you have to go the same route I go, which is through suffering, through shame, uh, through humiliation. And so if we're going to be rulers, if we're going to be, quote-unquote, in charge, we're going to be looking a lot like Jesus, who serves and who suffers. Because we fantasize about being in control. When we're little, we fantasize about being big. And when we're big and we have bills, we fantasize about being a kid. (laughs) Without bills and without nine-to-five responsibilities and without stress and life insurance and all that kind of stuff. Um, We... And so if we are to fantasize about rulers, <clears throat> being rulers, Christ brings us back down to earth and says, well, you're going to have to be a servant. And so if we have any role of being in charge of something, we need to be very careful that we are filled with the gospel and that we are able to be servants and not um, love bossing people around. And I have to think about that in a house full of chaos with four boys is... Um, What's my volume? What's my tone of voice? How do I get the results that I quote-unquote want in my home? And most often when it goes well, it's when I become the servant. And it's not when I'm yelling and booming in my scary voice. It's when I get down on their level, eye-to-eye, and just ask them, what's going on with your heart? What's going on in your world? And that's many times where we find the greatest influence is not being up high or or really loud or really scary, but it's when we are serving and serving well with love on the level of the people we've been called to serve. And what's the realm of our service? Well, it's on the earth. This world, it's broken right now. It doesn't look like the way it's going to be, and it doesn't look like the way it was meant to be. But a renewed physical and spiritual world is the one that God wants to bring about because it's the one he made in the beginning. So a cloud isn't the best place for us to rule. The best place for us to rule is in a new heaven and a new earth. So now we get to see what would it look like if God redeemed our relationships or redeemed our workplace or redeemed our time 
And so that's why Paul spends a lot of time talking to people about redeeming the time, redeeming your opportunities, because that's where God wants to change things. And that's where God's uniquely placed you wherever. You don't have to be up here to change things. You're already well-placed for God to do some great things as you um, work as a priest and as a king uh, who's like their king, Jesus, the servant. And so that's a high calling. And it transcends nationality. We don't fly the flag of our nation or of our ethnicity or of our birth (coughs) or of our in-tribe. I had to get off Twitter and Facebook this week because it was just the tribes were fighting in social media. Like, I just got to chill. I have to just get away from it a little bit. So I spent more time with people and and, uh, playing with my kids. And it was a good week. Um, wasn't as stressful as when I was watching uh, the Twitter feed. Um, so who's our tribe? Well, we're the tribe of Christ. And look at the blend we have in this room. It reminds us of what God's intention is for the world, is to blend us um, where Christ is preeminent, even though we come from uh, different places and different uh, backgrounds. Christ is Above all. And because of that, we have at the end of the chapter here, verses 11 through 14. So Christ is worthy to be allotted all praise. And really, this is where God shows us the great remedy for either really boasting, hey, our team won, or really despairing, when is our team ever going to win? The place where that is transformed is worship. Psalm 73, that was the other passage I was toying with preaching uh, this morning, is in Psalm 73, the psalmist is basically saying, in vain I have kept my hands clean. I'm tired of being good because what good is it to be good? To walk in your ways, God, because who always wins? Well, the wicked, the fat, rich, and wicked person always wins. There's no pains in their death. And he's like, But I would have led my brothers and sisters astray if I had opened my mouth and vented that to others. God, I'm venting it to you. You can handle it. But if I had said that to my brothers, it would have led them astray. And he said, and then I went to the sanctuary. I went to worship, and my world got rearranged. My priorities got rearranged. My sense of what was true and real and most important was rearranged. And then at the end, he says... What do I have on earth or in heaven except you? The nearness of God is my good. Because you're at my right hand, I will never be shaken. Susang and I were trained through the same uh, school in, in Philadelphia. And one of the things that they always press home in any area, whether it's preaching or in counseling, is that at the root of most of our problems, and and we could even maybe say all of them, is a worship disorder. We've taken subordinate things or secondary things and made them primary things. And then we've taken God, who is the primary uh, source of glory and of all good, and we have made him a secondary thing. And so here, by having the, the curtains of heaven peeled back, we start to see what the real epicenter, the real heart of the universe is, so to speak. It's not a nuclear explosion. It's not a reactor. It's not Stephen Hawking. Uh, It's not the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It is worship because at the center of everything is a worthy God 
And so we see these creatures, we hear these angels, we see these elders, and we see thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of angels singing with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. He who was meek and who was a victim of injustice and crucified, worthy is Him to receive power. And the one who lived in abject poverty and had a crash on his friend's couch, he never owned real estate. He owned one piece of clothing. To him be wealth. And the one who was mocked for the way that he spoke in parables and called God his father, to him be the wisdom and the might and the honor and glory and blessing. Here's the great reversal. Jesus humbled for our sake, as we recited in the creed. For us men and for our salvation, he became incarnate through the Virgin Mary. And as we're coming up on Advent, we should just be rocked with that sense that the great God became incarnate for us and for our salvation. Everything was inverted. And then, not only are all these beings who are glorious in themselves uh, proclaiming the glory and worth of Jesus. But look at verse 13. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. What we experience every day is the brokenness of creation. Broken ankles, cancer, death. We are awaiting a day when every molecule sings the praise of its creator and everything works in perfect harmony and unity. And this is a foretaste of it, that everything would sing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and they fell and worshipped. <coughs> so this is saying that every part of creation, God intends to redeem it. Because his greatest intention is for every part of creation and by extension and application, every part of our life is meant to bow down to Him and proclaim His worth. That doesn't mean you have to go get a churchy uh, vocation or, or become a missionary for every part of your life to sing His glory. Look at the story of Jonah to see a missionary whose life didn't sing the glory of God. He was a self-pitying, kind of moping, kind of selfish dude. And God redeemed that finally uh, at the end. Um, so it doesn't matter your location or your vocation. The, the great vocation of the Christian is to belong to him and to worship him and to serve him. And this is where we find ourselves. And we find, in one sense, a solid place to stand that's not shifting, that's not up every four years for decision. Who is worthy? Well, the answer is Christ. And then Christ has given us a great and a high calling, which is a, a holy service wherever we live, wherever, uh, whatever we do, and we do it for his glory, that he might get the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. So whether you're tempted to pride or you're tempted to despair or depression, this vision of Christ as worthy king and worthy lamb who was slain for us can give us great comfort. And it gives us a great call. It gives us great kind of marching orders for Monday. 
is what should I be about on Monday as I go to work? It's like, God, where can I serve? Where can I intercede so that others know you and are connected to you and are redeemed uh, by you? And let me just pray as we go with that hope. Father, we thank you that we can see Christ. And we thank you for giving uh, this vision to John who was suffering for the sake of Christ and if he was discouraged and and wondering was it worth it to being in your service, um, you proclaimed to him uh, that he was part of a great number of new people who had been claimed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we thank you how you are reversing uh, the curse of the Tower of Babel that, that caused men when they wanted to unite and rise up in pride against you, that you scrambled them through their languages um, and distributed them throughout the world. We thank you that you're unscrambling that through the gospel so that we are now under one head, even our Lord Jesus. And so we thank you for raising a new flag above the nations of the earth, a flag uh, where there's a bloodied lamb who is also a mighty king and a mighty lion that roars in the face of every pretended king that has ever been or ever will be. He is supreme, and he is worthy. And so we pray that as we see who he is, we would see who we are, that that would change our allegiances and would change our priorities, would change our fears, and would even change our confidence. And so we thank you uh, that your grace has come in Jesus and come to people like us and come to us in this place. So give us grace to know this, these facts and to live them out in our world. In Jesus' name.